My name is Leslie, and this is my sweet friend Lily, and we will be reading Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is over all, in all, and living through all. Real quick, just introductions. Uh, I'm Daniel Morgenstern. Uh, if I haven't met you, uh, I'm, I'm trying. I'm still cycling around. Um, uh, but please come up to me, say hi, and uh, I'd love to get to know you. Um, so as we saw in our skit this morning, it's really easy to get caught up in competition and rivalry. Uh, one time, uh, my family, we had extended family visiting from California just in time for the Vikings 49ers game. So. Of course, there was a bit of a rivalry going on. Uh, the smack talk started 10 minutes in, and now it's the fourth quarter, so the room is tense. Uh, in the final seconds, the Niners have Minnesota on the ropes. Uh, we do have possession, but it's third down, and we got over 30 yards to go, and nothing short of a touchdown is going to win us anything. Then uh, Brett Favre, because we had him at that point, um, he just pulls back and lets loose this impossible throw into the waiting arms of Greg Lewis. Touchdown! Uh, half the room explodes. We're so excited. We hugged. We cheered. We rubbed it in their faces. The word gracious just immediately left our vocabulary. We forgot what that was. Um, and so now the room is tense for a whole other reason. Uh, and I'm not proud to say this, but then we all went upstairs, plastered on, happy, fake smiles for a big family photo. Uh, it was Grandma Great's 80th birthday. Uh, did I forget to mention that? That's why the extended family was there. Grandma Great's 80th birthday. So like I said, it's easy to get carried away in just the competition and rivalry. Uh, quick all-play question for everyone. Who here loves football? Yep, yeah. yeah, there we go, there we go. And what's your team? Who's your team? Just shout it out. 49, oh, look at that. So it looks like we have some traitors in our midst. This is Minnesota, fucking territory. It's okay, it's okay. Jesus forgives, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, but just out of curiosity, does anyone know how many teams there are in the NFL? Oh, man, yeah, real quick. Um, but that's a lot, right? Ridiculous number. Like, how do you choose? How do you figure out which one you want? Um, but as many choices as football fans have today, um, the people in our immersed reading had 10 times more. And as much as football might at times feel like life or death choices, uh, these people actually had life or death choices in front of them. So there we go. Um, so the immersed reading for this week dove into many of Paul's letters, qu quite a few if you guys were looking at it. Um, so we're going to be focusing on three specifically, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. Now, before you ask, 
Yes, these three do have a connection. All three of them, I was surprised to find, are written and delivered around the same time. And uh, they all went to the church in Colossae, which you can kind of see on the bottom, middle there, um, near Ly Lycia. Um, and Philemon and Colossians, obviously, are both sent to the church of Colossae. But Ephesians, unlike the name, is actually meant to be cycled around to a bunch of the other churches in the area that Paul hadn't visited or hadn't been able to plant. So uh, despite the name, it's actually a more broad message. But more important than just the timeline connection, uh, there's a much more important thematic connection between these three books. You see, in all three of them, Paul is talking about the hierarchy of identities. Um, he's, Paul identifies three key identities, his audience that must be subjugated to be less important than their new identity in Christ. The identities Paul tackles are race, class, and religious identities. You see, here's where the life or death choices come in. In ancient Turkey, there were a vast number of different kinds of people. You can see just from that, it's colorful, it's varied, there's different clothing, different cultures going on. And uh, these people had, were separated into, obviously, different cultures and different views. Um, the three on the left uh, had been in the area since before there was writing and maybe even before there was farming. These were like prehistoric people living in this area. Um, the one on the far left is the first one we'll be talking about today, and they're the Easterners. They're people like the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medes, the Persians, uh, and uh, countless others uh, that lived in Turkey and would have considered this their homeland. This was where they started, this is where their culture had first grown, and this is what their normal looks like. Then there is the Phoenicians. So the Phoenicians were a seafaring people. They were traders, pirates, just sailors in general. And if you recognize kind of the headdress on the main guy in the picture on the left and then on Goliath on your right, it's because the Philistines are Phoenicians. They're, uh, they're a subgroup under the Phoenician culture group. So there's one of your many coming Bible connections. And then the final group down on the bottom there is the Greeks, and these are Greeks that lived on um, colonies along the western shore of Turkey. And they had moved there very early. So when other groups started moving in, they seemed like natives in comparison. So these three groups are kind of like, this is their hometown. This is, this is what they're used to. The four groups on the right, though, are kind of newcomers to the area. They've, they've come. They're trying to make this home. But in a lot of ways, they still think of a different place as their homeland. So first of these is uh, the Jews, which if I can get that, oop, there you go. The Jews, which had been brought to the area by the Babylonians. This is your Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel is one of the Jews brought from Israel to this area, and he's sentenced, sent to the lion's den by a Babylonian king, a native king. So they'd been here, and a lot of them had gone home, but some had stayed, and they'd, they'd kind of made a home here. The next group was another wave of Greeks, and now Macedonians, under the military leadership of, you know, this guy, whoever he is, he's pretty boy, Alexander the Great, 
conquered most of the known world. Big in history. <laughs> and then the next group were the Celts. And they're like the baseline of Irish culture. So if you can imagine it, there's these people that are essentially similar culture types, similar like build as Irishmen living in the middle of Turkey in a little mountainous province called Galatia. You might have heard of it. And then finally, you had the Romans who showed up as military conquerors. They left a bunch of military garrisons, and they also opened up for immigration from Italy. So, confused? <laughs> Imagine what it would be like to be living in this cultural soup. Uh, there's so many different types of people all jammed together in this tiny, tiny place, and none of them were particularly interested in sharing. There was a constant struggle to get to the top, and the only people you could really trust, or maybe even understand, were people in your group. Isn't this fight true in our lives, too? We have, we've all had that gut punch moment when uh, we realize our friend thinks, voted, or acts differently than we do. Um, we suddenly, we, we liked them, and we assumed they were part of our group, and then we find out they're not. And suddenly, we don't feel as safe around them. We might even pull back, scared of the difference. Into this reality, Paul writes a potent challenge. He writes to the Gentiles in Colossae, and he writes, in those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the walls of hostility that separated us. Did you catch that? Paul writes the Gentiles, anyone not a Jew, are united with Jews as one people. When Jesus died on the cross, he not only put to death our sin, but he put to death the racial and cultural divisions that turn people against one another. Paul was writing in this intensely culturally divided land and calling on Christians to recognize that they are one people in Christ. But Paul isn't done there. He drives on to the division of class. The division between classes was a lot wider in ancient times. This was the age of kings and nobles, patrons and commoners, um, slaves and free. Almost as important as your cultural identity, your social standing uh, determined your rights, legal protections, marriage, work, and your freedom. We've all seen that scene in that movie where the elite nobleman looks his looks down his nose at the commoner and says, you're not worthy because you're just a lowborn. Oh. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Disney makes whole movies just around this idea. But most stark of all these distinctions in class was between slave and free. In Rome, out of every 10 people, four of them would have been slaves. In ancient Turkey, this proportion was a little lower, but there still would have been a large number of people 
living with little to no freedom. Again, Paul challenges the cultural expectations in Philemon 1, 15 through 16, when he writes to a Christian slave owner, there you go, it seems you lost Onesimus, your slave, for a little while, so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you, he's more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Onesimus' status as a slave would mean that he, in the eyes of his world, wasn't worthy of sitting at the same table as his master. Look at this picture. Everyone seems to be having a nice time, right? They're enjoying themselves. But what's this? Kind of off in the corner, away from the table, there's the slave, standing away, holding a bowl. That's a job that could be taken care of by furniture. But they have a human being doing it. When do we treat people like furniture? Do we forget the waiter might be having a rough day? Do we walk past that homeless person like they're not even there? Do we trust a famous person more than their accuser just because they're famous? So when Paul tells the master and slave that they are brothers, members of the same family, reborn into the same standing, social class, as children of God, it's radical, then and now. If a slave and a master could be brought to the same level by the Lord, so too could every other class distinction. A homeless Christian and Dave Ramsey are brothers in Christ. The beautiful thing about all this, though, is that Paul is writing to churches that are already working towards cultural and class uh, unity. They were mixed bodies of slave and free, nobles and commoners, uh, various, various different races, Gentiles and Jews. And they're slowly but surely putting aside those identities to take on this one Christian unity. But there is one more division, far more damaging than the others, because it's easily disguised as God's will. I'm talking about religious distinctions, doctrinal disputes within the body that threatened to split it, and we sadly know did later on split the church. The main doctrinal dispute of the day was between those that believed that all need to conform to the law of Moses and those that believed that Jesus had fulfilled that law. Similar to our modern arguments on baptism, the crux of the issue revolved around how symbolic acts like circumcision and even kosher should be carried out and if they were requirements. Gentiles wishing to become Jews in the past had been required to follow all these. So why did these Christians, why would they be any different? But this view ignored the absolutely earth-shaking event that was the crucifixion. Paul says as much in Colossians 2, 11. He writes, <laughs> ah, there we go. Having trouble with the, the verses. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed 
a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. And then goes on to make it absolutely, abundantly clear that doctrinal distinctions have no power over the body of Christ. In Colossians 2, 16 through 17, he writes, <laughs> So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. The rules and symbolic acts are just that, symbolic. They reflect the reality rather than being it. The Jews insisting upon Gentile circumcision and kosher eating were missing the point, and they were dividing the body while doing it. They were trying to maintain the old Jewish identity, and indeed, many Jews, and even some Christians, still are. But Jesus came to bring a new identity, new. Paul writes in Colossians 3.11, In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or, or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Let me read that again. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman, black or white, liberal or conservative, Catholic or Protestant, Asian or Hispanic, first world or third world, western or eastern, midwestern or southern, east coast or west coast, Bible Belt or Silicon Valley, rural or urban, rich or poor, middle class or lower class, Baptists or Lutheran, bishops or pastors, baptism or dedication, married or single, drum sets or organs, extrovert or introvert, artsy or sporty, nerdy or popular, outdoorsy or homebody, Star Wars or Star Trek, Tolkien or Martin, Vikings or Packers, <laughs> LeBron or Michael, jazz or rock, rap or country, Beatles or Stones, or whether you like the color blue more than the color red. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Not all Christians are the same. If God had meant for us to be, he would have made a bunch of robots. But we are on the same team. And if we forget that, we're no better than the feuding and broken world around us. The world and the enemy want nothing more than a divided church. When people are divided, they are weak. They're easy to control. They can't change anything. Jesus wants nothing more than a united church. A church that wins by inviting its enemies in. A church that stands strong in the face of petty divisions and little niggly fights. A church that can change everything. A church that never forgets that every single person on this earth is a child of God. That was true in ancient Turkey in the first century, and it's true in Apple Valley in 2019. So as you're going home today, um, and maybe you're sitting down to watch the game, you're grabbing your popcorn, you're grabbing your drinks, and you're enjoying your time, have fun, enjoy the game. Have fun sticking it to those poor Detroit fans who are about to lose. 
But remember that Christ is in Detroit. And some of those people wearing blue are our family. Father, we want to be one with you and one with each other. Help us to see the world and our brothers and sisters as you do, without barriers, without division. Show us how to love past those things. Show us how to get over ourselves and to love one another as you have loved us. We love you, Lord.